I so want for you in your life, for you to connect your life to something bigger than you. But I don't want you to just connect to anything. I want you to connect to something Jesus was passionate about. In fact, in Matthew 16, we'll throw the verse on the screen for you. Jesus was talking. I love this verse. He says, I tell you, you're Peter. He's talking to Peter, obviously. He said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look here a second. Two things strike me in that passage. One is this, that Jesus is the one who's going to build his church. I want you to remember that. Jesus is the one who's going to build his church. He's the one building his church. But then he says this. He says, hell can't stop it. He said, the church I'm building, hell can't stop. I love that. Like, sign me up, right? But it begs a question, right? Now, if you're new here, I'm going to tell you something. We're just honest here. We just, like, you got to ask an honest question. And the honest question is this. If Jesus said, I'm going to build the church and hell can't stop it, then why is it that today, 21st century, in American culture, hell seems to be stopping and closing up a lot of churches? It's a good question. It's an okay question. And the only legitimate answer that I can come up with is this, is that other people started to try to build something that Jesus said he was going to build. And in doing so, they disconnected from his vision for his church. And so all we've been saying is this, we're going to put aside our past pictures of church, our personal preferences, our pet peeves, all that stuff. And we're going to say, Jesus, you inspire us, you motivate us, you challenge us, you convict us, you do whatever's necessary. Because here's what we've said, Jesus has a big picture vision for his church. He has a vision for the church that he's building. And that big picture vision that he has for his church is found in the pages of Scripture, right there in the part you have laid open in your lap. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you got to underline it, circle it, star it, make sure it stands out. Here's what he says. He said, y'all are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here. And then in all Judea and Samaria, there. And then the ends of the earth, everywhere. His vision for the church is that his story called the gospel makes a difference here, gets there, impacts everywhere. That's his vision. And when you read the book of Acts, when you see this played out over time, people who connect, certain things happen. When they connect to his vision for the church, there's several things that we've talked about happen. First is this. Jesus' big picture vision will always ignite big picture praying. When I connect to his vision for his church, you know what? I pray different. You read the book of Acts. We did this week one. You read the book of Acts. Those, those cats prayed different than you and I, right? They weren't saying, oh, please protect Sammy. He's got to protect, 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 protect. That's not the way they prayed. Okay, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying they said, oh, God, give us boldness and courage to play our part in your story. I love that. And they're like, man, we want to we wanna run into this. And prayer wasn't their last resort. It was their first impulse. They prayed different. Not only that, but Jesus' big picture vision always, 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 always involves the Holy Spirit moving. If the Holy Spirit ain't moving, then there's something else going on. We talked about that. But here, some of you are like, oh, man, Holy Spirit, because you grew up in a church and that, that whole topic's kind of weird and, and kind of goofy and creepy to you. I'd go back and listen to week two of this series, because it oughtn't be. 
And I apologize for churches that have made it weird and creepy. But, but here it is in a nutshell. The Holy Spirit wants to move in. When you say yes to Jesus, Holy Spirit moves in. And then the Holy Spirit wants to move things around in my life. He wants to move out lies, move in truth, so that there's more of Jesus, less of me. And then he wants to move through me. That's the, that's the Holy Spirit. And we talked about it week two. And, and his big picture vision always involves him moving. And then last week, it involves a bigger picture of the church. When Jesus talked about the church, he didn't talk about it like you and I many times thinking about it. We many times when we think about the church, we think about a, a place or a service, not Jesus. He thought about people. When we think about the church, we think about a, a, a place where we're going to be entertained, hopefully, not Jesus. He thought about a place where people were being equipped for something bigger than them. And so his big picture vision had a bigger picture of the church. And then, last but not least today, I want you to write this down. Jesus' big picture vision. Jesus' big picture vision inspires big picture giving. I want you to write it down, then I'd like to talk to you for a minute. Go ahead and write it down. When I see your eyes, I know you're done. How's that? Now, I want you to look to your neighbor and say, he's going to talk about giving today. Go ahead and look at your neighbor and say, he's going to talk about giving. Oh, you're kind of quiet, huh? Here's what I know. Some of you are like, what? Some of you are like, this is my first Sunday here. Look here, I'm, a, I'm just going to be honest with you about something. Just let the cat out of the bag. I'm getting ready to talk to you for the next 25 minutes or so about the most hated topic people here in church. I'm going to run into it with confidence, too. But what I'm getting ready to talk to you about for the next, just smile at me, okay? Just smile. Can you do that? All right? I've been doing this over 20 years, right? And I know that when somebody talks about giving money in church, like there's this tension that covers the room, okay? I get it. I get it. And this is the most hated topic people hear about in church. And I understand why. Some of you, I, I, I've done this long enough, I know exactly what some of you are thinking. Some of you are like, yep, I knew he was going to do this sooner or later, Bam, this was the Sunday, Memorial Day weekend, right? Others of you are thinking, man, I invited my friend, and this is the first Sunday they came, and this is what he's talking about, and I'm like, ah, ah, right? I get it. Some of you, look here, some of you, some of you, you've been spiritually abused. I use those words purposely. And so you're skeptical, and right away your guard is up. Others of you, you're a little different than that. You've been, you grew up in church. You've been around church. You, and here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, boy, here it goes. Yep, been there, done that, been there, heard that. And you're already thinking about, well, maybe I ought to make out my grocery list. <laughs> here's the deal. I want to talk to you wherever you're at on that spectrum because I think there's some things that rearrange our paradigm when it comes to giving. I understand why some of y'all are mad about giving in church. I understand why some of y'all hate to hear about it in church. I get it. You ought to be. Some of you, you're, you're frustrated because people hate hearing about this in church, and you know what happens? There are some pastors, I was one, I'll just make a confession, I was one. There are some pastors because people hate hearing about this in church, you know what they do? They never talk about it. When I was a young pastor, I never talked about it, and I was, confession, I was proud of it. I was proud of the fact that you come to the church where I pastored in Indiana, and people would come and say, man, we're like coming to your church. Really? Yeah, you never talk about money or giving. I'm like, that's right, man. We're one of those churches, right? Like, I was kind of proud of it until God convicted me of it. Because God kind of leaned into my heart in a unique way and reminded me of a passage. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And he said, Dan, why do you not find it important to talk to these people about something Jesus thought it was important to talk to them a lot about? 
Shame on pastors who won't talk about it. But there's others of you, you're frustrated, you're angry, understand why you are, you should be, you know why you've been spiritually abused because the only way you've ever heard this talked about, the only way you've ever heard it talked about is connected to guilt, greed, or gimmicks. That's the only way you've ever heard it talked about. And so a pastor made you feel guilty because you weren't keeping the rules and whatever and whatnot, or, or he talked to you with a big shiny smile, maybe on TV, about how if you give, you'll get. Just send in your money and this is what will happen. By the way, if you're listening to that preacher, whoever that is, on that TV station, turn the channel. Not all preachers are preaching the truth. And if they're preaching about this topic with guilt, gimmicks, and greed, literally, literally they're leading you down a path that never was intended when it comes to this topic of giving. Shame on them. You see, the deal is God has a lot to say about this whole idea of giving and you cannot escape the fact we just got to be real with it that when you get to the book of acts you find a group of people who connected to jesus big picture vision and there all of a sudden exploded a generous giving church that gave voluntarily sacrificially joyfully extravagantly creatively that's how they gave and it begs a question i love asking questions by the way it begs a question. Why is it that when I read the book of Acts and read about that church, why is it what they embraced we struggle with? Why is it what they were bold in we get cold in? Why is it what, what was impulsive to them we hate to hear talked about? You have to engage the question, why is that? Why do we get tense when this comes up? When it sounds like that was just part of their impulse in their instinct. And I think the answer is they were connected to something bigger than them. They were inspired by Jesus' big picture vision for his church. Look here a second. I just want to see your eyes. I want to talk to you if you're sitting here this morning and, and right now you're frustrated because I'm going to talk about this. Give me the next 20 minutes, will you? I want to talk to you if you've been spiritually abused by it. Give me the next 20 minutes, will you? Some of you, I'm looking in your eyes, I know some of you. Some of you are young adults and high school students. I wish somebody had sat down and told me what I'm getting ready to tell you. Take notes today. I wish somebody, uh, when I was newly married, had told me what I'm getting ready to tell you today. Some of you are, are sitting here and you're like, I'm so frustrated. Listen, I'm going to tell you something I say almost every week. You do not have to agree with me to come here on Sunday morning. But I'd love for you to think about it because I want to change the paradigm for this conversation. When you get to the book of Acts, Jesus said, here's my big picture vision, here, there, everywhere, gospel, you're my witnesses, Holy Spirit moving, ignites a prayer movement. But you need to know something. If you read the book of Acts, when they connect it to Jesus' big picture vision for his church, listen close, it didn't take long, roundabout chapter four, for things to get dicey. All of a sudden, they started to meet opposition. This is a sermon for a different time. But if you're here this morning and you think, man, a follower of Christ, everything is smooth and easy, you're not reading the same story that I am in the Bible. Things are not always easy just because I connect my life to Christ. I mean, you get to chapter 4, they meet opposition. 
And when they meet opposition, we talked about this earlier in the series, all of a sudden we see the apostles being brought in, told don't ever speak in, in the name of Jesus again. And then they release them and they return to the church. And remember we talked about how the church prayed. In Acts chapter 4, something interesting happens. I want you to look there with me. Flip your Bibles over to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. It says, After they prayed, place where they were meeting was shaken. I'd love to have been there. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's more of Jesus, less of me. We talked about that week too. Spoke word of God boldly. Check this out. Begins to describe this group. All the believers, one in heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Let's say that again. God's grace so powerfully at work in them all that there's no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land, houses sold them, brought the money to the, of the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Look here a second. I want to explain something. The book of Acts, we talked about this week one, is a, is a, is a snapshot of the church at a particular time and place. What we see here is a description, not necessarily a prescription. Let me explain it this way. What we see here is a description of how this church connected to Jesus' big picture vision gave. It's not necessarily a prescription of this is how all churches, all time, forever and always need to do it. But when you look at this description we just read, you begin to uncover this is what's important. This is where some of you have been abused in church on this topic of giving. When you read this passage, one thing you read when you read the description of this church is why they gave. You uncover the motivation, the inspiration for why they gave. And I think there's three reasons that are in this passage that are worthwhile us writing down this morning. Three reasons this church gave in a big picture kind of way. And three reasons you and I can be inspired to give in a big picture way. I want you to write them down. First is this. Very first is this. The reason would be this, because I am responding to a big God. I'm responding to a big God. If you have your Bible still open in front of you, if you look at verse 24, this whole section begins with a prayer. And this is how their prayer went. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, we talked about this. You made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Let me say it this way. Big picture giving, this is the foundation. Big picture giving is rooted in a big picture of God. Big picture giving and generosity is always rooted in a big picture of God. In other words, I will give or be generous, ready, in proportion to the picture I have of God. And they had this big picture of God. Sovereign Lord, you made everything. They knew several things about God. First, they knew this. I want you to write it down, that he owns everything that I have. He owns everything I have. That's why it says in verse 32, chapter 4, all the believers, one in heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. How could they say that? Because they knew that what they had was not their own, that God owned it. 
Can I just tell you something? This changes the way you interact with the stuff you have, with the money you have. This changes the way you interact with it when you realize he owns it all. Here's how I know that. Because you interact with something different when you think you own it versus when you think it's on loan to you, when you're borrowing it. You tracking with me? You're not. Let me give you an illustration then. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're a parent. Just raise your hand. I want to see how many parents I got. Hands down. Raise your hand if you have ever allowed your children to drive your car. Let me see who I'm talking to in the room. Knowingly. <laughs> That's what I say, right? Here's the deal. How many of you have ever let your kid drive your car and said, hey, here's what I want you to do. This is my car. I want you to do this. And all of a sudden had to have another talk with them because they began to drive their car as though they owned it and weren't borrowing it. Anybody have it? Yeah, some of you in the back, you're like, That's me, right? That is a different conversation because you want your kiddo to know what? Listen, this is not your car. This is my car. So here's the deal. I want you to drive it knowing who owns the car. You don't own the car. You didn't pay for the car. Drive within the speed limit. Get home by this time, right? I want you to drive knowing this is my car. Don't act like you own the car, right? Here's the deal. When you know God owns everything you have, it changes the way you interact with what you have. Trust me, it does. And this is the place to begin. You won't get any further in the whole concept and understanding of giving till you start here. When I walk home, I love the fact that I walk home to a house that I enjoy, God's house. Just try it this afternoon. I'm walking into God's house. I'm getting into God's car. He owns it. He lets it on loan to me for his purposes. The money I have in the bank, my checkbook, God's. It's God. They knew this. They didn't claim it was their own. Why? They knew he owned everything. But that is not all. Do you see what it says in that section? It says God's grace was powerfully at work in them. Their giving was a response to the fact God owned it all. And their giving was a response to God's grace flowing in their life. I want you to write this down. I cannot nor should I ever hoard God's grace you see, when I begin to realize how much I have received from God, it ignites a big picture giving. Big picture giving is a response to a big God. When I struggle with generosity and giving, okay, it is possible that my picture of God is really small. That instead of a God who owns it all, I see myself as somebody who owns it all. And God's job is to make sure he is my manager. He helps me with what I have. It's a different paradigm. When I see that he owns it all, all of a sudden I realize that it's on loan to me. And I want to know how he wants me to utilize it. Leverage it for his purposes. And then when I realize how his grace has impacted my life. I don't want to hoard it. But not only that, I give in a big picture way because I'm convinced of a big gospel. Big picture giving is always connected to a big picture message. Verse 31, chapter 4. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God boldly. What was the word of God they spoke boldly? Look here a second. This is so important. They were speaking this word, that Jesus died. But he didn't just die. That when he died, he died for our sins in our place. They buried him, he rose again. And because Jesus died, was buried, and is alive, and he died for our sins in our place, you and I can have 
forgiveness. You and I can have a bigger purpose for our life, a bigger hope for our life, a bigger power for our life. That's the word of God they spoke boldly. Here's why this is important. I don't know what your history in church is, but Jesus' big picture vision for his church was not that it be a religious institution that simply propagated certain moral standards. The purpose, Jesus' purpose for his church wasn't so that people would become better people, good moral people. His purpose and vision for his church was centered around a message that has the power to rescue and change lives. That's, that's what the word of God that they spoke boldly. And because that is a word they were convinced of, they were willing to invest themselves completely. How in the world do you and I know that we're convinced of that message? I think there's two ways worth writing down. First, it'll be a message that changes me. It'll be a message that changes me. If somehow the gospel isn't changing me, I would beg the, the question, do, am I convinced of the gospel? You see, big picture giving is selfless because it reflects the heart of a God that's selfless, and that's the heart of the gospel. Verse 8, Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He did what was necessary to meet our need. Here's the way I would put it. Somebody who gives in a big picture way reflects the heart of a God who gave in a big picture way. Somebody who gives selflessly reflects that somehow the story of the gospel has impacted them and they give just like a God who gave selflessly, sacrificially, joyfully, generously, extravagantly. That message changes me, but it doesn't just change me. I want you to write this down. It charges me. It's what drives my life. It's the priority, the passion, the purpose of my life. If I truly believe the story called the gospel, it not only changes me, it is the charge on my life. It made me think of something this last week, and I've asked this question already in two services, and I think I've had five people raise their hand. But a few years ago, I watched a, a, a movie with my wife. It was not one that I would have chosen, but I was glad I did, um, that hardly anybody else has seen, it seems like. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the movie Extraordinary Measures. I'd love to see who I'm talking to. I see four. One of them's my kid because he had to watch it with us, I think, right? But I see four of you. You ought to go check this movie out. It'd be worth it. Um, Netflix, I don't know where it's at. Netflix, check it out. Let me tell you the story. It's fascinating. I was mesmerized by the, the storyline. It's a true story of husband and wife, three kids. Two of their kids, you ready, had Pompe's disease. Debilitating disease where life expectancy is 10, no longer. The story tells about the man on the left who, who is playing the part of the dad who, who loved his kids and he loved them and would not accept that verdict. And so he began looking for a way to do anything possible to save his kid's life. Living until they're 10 is not okay with me. And so he began to connect with this research specialist. He literally left his job as an executive in a financial institution, started a company, invested everything he had in order to save his kid's life. Why? He loved them, and nothing, 
Nothing was too much to ask in order to make sure he could save their life. Listen to me. We worship, serve a God where nothing was too much in order to save people that he loves. That's the gospel. And it's that message that changes lives. And if you and I, as people connected to his big picture vision, if you and I truly believe that, truly are convinced of that, big picture giving is a response to the fact God is big and this message will save lives and change people forever. But not only that, when you read Acts 4, you realize that They responded to a big God. They were convinced of a big gospel and they were connected to a big movement. They were connected to a big movement. Acts 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. They realized this, that they were partnering with God. God said, you're going to be my witnesses. So God was saying, I want you to do this. And they were part of something bigger than just they were. Look here a second, because I got to race to this last part. It's important. No guilt, no gimmicks, no greed. Gospel-centric giving, generosity, is connected to my view of God. My generosity is directly connected to what I see when I think about God. It's directly connected to how convinced I am that the gospel changes lives. And it is directly connected to whether or not I see myself connected to something bigger than me. A big picture movement. No guilt, no gimmicks, no greed. That's gospel-centric giving. So it begs a question. If that's the why, then what's the how? How in the world do I do that? In my office... In my office, the majority of people who want to talk to me about giving, this is what they want to talk about. And I always like to start by talking about the why. Because if you don't know the why, the how is mechanics. So I always like to begin with the why, but then they want to say to me, well, tell me how does this look? And I'm happy to do that. I need to make sure I give credit where credit is due. When I explain the how, I always refer to something I heard and read from a guy named Andy Stanley, and I've just tweaked it for my own purposes. But he makes it easy to understand, easy to communicate, and I would call it the five P's of giving. This is worth writing down. You ought to write these things down, let them percolate. First is this, how in the world do I give? I would begin by planning to participate. Plan to participate. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though Jesus was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I want to say something right now that if you forget everything else I say, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this part of what I'm going to say. The gospel begins. Listen close. The gospel begins with me realizing I have absolutely nothing to bring to God. Let that sink in. Nothing. In fact, we could say it this way. I am spiritually bankrupt. I got nothing. 
But the gospel says this. This is 2 Corinthians 8 9, the verse I just read to you. Listen close. That Jesus, you ready? Ready? He emptied his account so that he could have a relationship with you. You and I are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus emptied his account so that he could have a relationship with you. That's the gospel. And so big picture giving doesn't start by giving anything. You know what? If I'm going to plan to participate, I would write this somewhere. I need to plan to participate by receiving what God gives. That's the gospel. That in Christ, he gives me forgiveness of sin. He gives me spiritual blessing. He gives me hope. He gives me promise. He gives me power. And so big picture giving starts that way. Why do I say this is so important? Because I meet people all the time who grew up in church and they like to tell me how much they're giving. As though somehow I'll be impressed, as though somehow God will be impressed. And here's the deal big picture giving doesn't begin that way, end that way, or involve any of that. Big picture giving starts by me receiving humbly something I could not do on my own. Big picture giving starts with me realizing I'm spiritually bankrupt, totally dependent on the gospel and what Jesus did for me on the cross. I cannot have a relationship with God apart from Christ. But then here's what happens. Big picture giving starts by participating in receiving what he gives, and then I give because he gave. I give because he gave. I plan to participate because he gave. You say, why, this, why is this important? Some of y'all grew up in church and you hear what I'm getting ready to say. Giving is not a rule you follow. It's a grace you grow in. Say it again. Giving is not a rule you follow. It's a grace that you grow in. I meet people who grew up in legalistic churches and here's what they'll say. How much do I have to give? <laughs> right? And I'm like, wow, man. Then, then there's people over here, they're, they're all about freedom in Christ. And like, I'll, I'll give anything, I'm free in Christ. I'm like, oh man. But people who understand the gospel, like they give in response to what they've received in Christ through the gospel. So I, I plan to give because God gives. And then I want you to write this down. Then I plan to participate because I believe in what God's doing. That when I say yes to Jesus, this is a different sermon for a different time probably. I'm saying yes to him as my savior and the king of my life. He's the king. And so I want to leverage my life, my resources, my passions, my energy for what my king is doing in my life. Plan to participate. Second, make it a priority. Make it a priority. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Simply put, he's saying, I want this to be the top of the list. Why? Listen, I feel like i got to deconstruct, reconstruct. Man, some of you have heard this over and over again. Make it a priority. Why? Because the preacher said so? <laughs> some of you grew up that way. No. No. This preacher is just like you. No. I'll tell you why you make it a priority. You ready? Here's why you make it a priority. Because God made you a priority. The gospel says that God made you a priority. And so what his desire is, is that somehow giving reflects who I worship. What I worship. And he says, I want the first part of your heart 
your energy, your mind. I don't want the leftovers. I don't want, yeah, when I think about it, I want the first part. In the Old Testament, there was this thing called first fruits. First fruits. Okay, so they'd give the first of their crop and their whatever. They, the, for, why? Because he's like, I, it's not so much that I need your vegetables, <laughs> right? God, it's not like, God, I need your vegetables, right? I'm making a salad. That's not what he said. He's like, I want something for you. I want, to, I want your heart is connected to your treasure, and I want you to treasure me above and beyond anything. He said, make it a priority. God wants your heart. Plan to participate. Make it a priority. Then write this down. Decide on a percentage. Decide on a percentage. Malachi 3 says, Should people cheat God? Yet you've cheated me. You ask, what do you mean? You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. I've got I to tell you something. Some of you have heard this word. Some of you are like, what? Some of you have heard the word tithe. Some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. But for those of you who just like... You hear it in church, like when we're giving our tithes and our offering. Well, tithes, we've Americanized it. Can I just say that? I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. We've Americanized it. Tithe represents the, the, the children of God. In, in the Old Testament, they gave the first 10% of their gross income. Let's just think of it that way. First 10% of their, their gross income as offering to God. That's tithe. Okay? You with me? If you really delve into it for a different sermon for a different time, they actually gave way more than that. But, but, but for the sake of today, let's just say that, that first 10%. Now, why 10%? Like, preacher, why did God choose 10%? You ready? Get your pens ready. I'm going to tell you why. You ready? Your pens ready? I don't know. Okay? <laughs> I just figure he knows something I don't know you don't know, right? But he said, let's start with 10%. Here's what I do think to myself, though, and that's this. When I recognize that, I realize that God measures different than we do. He measures percentages, not amounts. Here's what I mean by that. People all the time are telling me, well, I can't give as much as so-and-so. Who cares? <laughs> I don't even think God looks at it that way. In fact, there's a story in the New Testament of some really rich guys dumping in their wealth, right? And this widow comes in. You remember that story? She dumps in her might. And, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, she gave more than them. And, and if you're just observing, you're like, no, she didn't. Yes, she did. <laughs> yes, she did. Like, they have tons. They gave just a small percent of what they have. Her, she gave everything she had. And so I think somehow God measures it different. But I think somehow it reflects my heart. I double-dog dare you to do something when you go home. Okay? Because, because your treasure is connected to your heart. I, I, I mean this. I hope some of you take me up on it and you don't even need to report back to me. I'm not a priest. I'm not an accountant. I'm not. But you ought to do it. I double-dog dare you to go back through 2016 and see what percent of your income you gave away. You know, statistics say that in our 21st century American culture, that average household somewhere between 2 and 3% in the richest country in the world. You don't need to tell me. You don't need to come confess. That's not the way this rolls, okay? If you're newer to church, that's not what we do here. But you ought to let it lean into you and say, okay, what's that say about my heart? What does this say about what I treasure? So I plan to participate. I make it a priority. I decide on a percentage. And then I would write this down. Continue to progress in your generosity. Here's all I mean by this. Some 
of us are faithful and intentional, but we've grown stale in our generosity. By the way, if I could say this, and in, in, at the risk of, I, I'm not here to necessarily step on anybody's toes, but if this does, I apologize. If you're somebody who's grown up in church and this is the way you talk about giving, I want you to stop for your sake because I think it's mis- misunderstood. If, if you consider your giving as I pay my tithe, ooh, it sounds like you're paying your taxes. And I think you misunderstand the heart of giving because giving isn't a tax you pay, it's a grace you grow in. And I think when you read 2 Corinthians 8, particularly I think it's verse 7, this is what he says. Since you excel or are progressing in so many ways, he said, you got incredible faith, gifted speakers, knowledge, enthusiasm. I want you to excel in the gracious act of giving. It's like generosity is something I increase in. It's not simply a routine I stall in. So I plan to participate, right? I make it a priority. I decide a percentage, and then I want to continue to progress, and then last but not least, and then I'm done, I determined to pray. It says, each of you decide in your heart what to give, not reluctantly under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. When I understand the gospel's the motive, all of a sudden giving is something that becomes cheerful, not compulsion out of reluctance. I determined to pray and say, God, what part do you want me to play? Now, don't put your stuff away. Can I just talk to you for two minutes and then we're done? I'm going to pray and we're done. So my point this morning is simply this. For some of you who have sat in church services and heard pastors browbeat you about giving, this is literally my desire. I want you to begin to look at this whole thing different. We have a big God. The gospel is a life-changing message, and we're part of a big movement. And then I would like for you to begin to look at your own heart and determine what you treasure. You're like, how do I do that? You want to know how you do it? Here's, I'm just going to give you some homework. Go audit yourself. That doesn't sound very spiritual. I think Jesus would say that's maybe the most spiritual thing you could do as a result of this message. Audit yourself. Well, I'm not sure I would like what it is that... That's Okay. Let your money talk to you because where your money is going is where your heart is heading. And some of you are here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus and you're like, what are you asking us to do? I'm asking you not to give anything. I'm asking you to receive what he has given you. Jesus died in your place for your sin. That's the only way for you to be forgiven, have a relationship with God. But there are some of you that would say, I'm a follower of Christ and you don't give anything. Can I just ask you to to allow this to challenge your heart and say, what do I treasure? Is my Savior my King? Am I participating in what He's doing? I like singing about Him but my money will lead me to what I really treasure. There are some of you that are sitting here, and I'm not picking, that, that, that because this was me. I'm just being honest. This was me. That you are somebody, you give, but you give sporadically without any thought. Can I just challenge you to begin to plan, to participate, 
and make it a priority and determine a percentage and then say, God, would you grow me in this as my understanding of the gospel grows? Allow my generosity to follow. That's gospel-centric giving. And then as your pastor, I had somebody ask me, don't you feel weird talking to people about this? Look here, I'm going to just look at your eyes because I prefer to just say it to you face-to-face. No. I don't think I would be a good pastor if I didn't talk to you about this. For years, I didn't. Shame on me. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is, and where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And so as your pastor, I want to invite you to be a part of something bigger than you. Some of you are like, man, I want to be a part of this big picture project. How do I sign up? Well, there's cars in the table. There's back there's the headquarters. I want you to be a part. Some of you are like, I've never given. How do I start? You can let us, I'm happy to, to share. Some of you are like, I don't know that I trust you, Dan. Okay, that's fine. But you know something? If you're a follower of Jesus... I wouldn't discount what I've said. I'd find somewhere to begin giving where you can partner with what the king's doing. Somewhere. So, Father, I love my friends in this room. Honest conversation this morning. Thanks for allowing us to have it. I'm grateful that the gospel is the motive, the inspiration. Thank you for Jesus. And I'm sure there's some sitting here who have never said yes to Jesus. If that's you, you can do that right there in your seat at this moment. Say, yes, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. And that Jesus died for me in my place for my sin. And this morning I want to say yes to him as Savior, Lord, and King of my life. Father, I pray not only for those who have never said yes to Jesus, but some in this room have said yes to Jesus, but this is a conversation they hate, they feel uncomfortable with, or they rationalize away, or they think that's for other people. And I understand that, and yet I pray, God, that you would help us not to discount this conversation because it might be pointing to something in our heart that's diseased. So show us that and help us. Help us to run into you for the solution and remedy of that. And then I pray, God, that here at Grace Church, that there would be people that are so connected to your vision that they would pray different, they would move and allow the Spirit of God to move inside of them so that we might serve this bigger picture of the church. And I pray that you would raise up radical, generous, creative, joyful, sacrificial people who would give to reflect the heart of their God. And I pray as a result... People who don't know Jesus would come to Christ. People who are strangling in addiction would be helped. People who don't have enough to eat would have food in front of them because your people connected to your vision decided to run into, not away from messiness, to take hope where hope's hard to find. Help us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.